From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thank you for being with us on this Monday, whether you are working or have the day off. A busy day. We're going to talk a little bit more about getting back to school. The Premier was asked about that earlier today and about the number of teachers in this province. Specifically, how many positions are empty and vacant needing to be filled in this province? Still unclear at this point as kids get ready to uh, head back to the classrooms, for the most part, that's uh, happening tomorrow for many, many students. Well, we're going to talk more about this and hear from you coming up during the show. Right now, though, take a listen to something that David Eby said just earlier today when he was asked specifically about those teacher vacancies. So we're continually hiring teachers, and school boards are. They're recruiting and retaining, so the numbers do change all the time. Uh, but we don't expect that any schools will have to delay opening because they are short teachers, uh, despite some of the suggestions that have been made. Uh, We think that we're going to be able to open all the schools on time and as planned, and parents should be bringing their kids to school as planned. Uh, And uh, we think that uh, certainly the shortages that we're facing are serious, and we need to pay attention and recruit and train additional teachers, uh, but that all kids are going to get a good education in British Columbia. That was Premier David Eby speaking earlier today. Well, let's bring in Jatinder Beer, president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Jatinder, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, we've heard this from the BC Teachers Federation. Clint Johnston was on this radio station last week talking about potential shortages. Do you know the numbers or or do you have a better idea or a a picture at all of what it's looking like as we head back into the school year? No, to be honest, I have no idea what the numbers of of, of short teachers we will be. I can tell you that um, in Surrey, my understanding is that we have approximately 100 to 200 positions that have been posted, uh, but I don't know what the status of uh, what they're like as far as if, if we've been able to place teachers into those positions. But I, my understanding is that there is a shortage. And what does it generally look like then going into the school year? And that I know each district is a little different as far as when kids come back and getting a, a, a better idea of the enrollment, knowing the exact numbers. And then how do things generally unfold in Surrey as far as the time it takes to make sure uh, kids have their classrooms, to have everybody kind of assigned to where they're going to be for the year? Right. Um, So it's a very exciting time of the year, of course. Um, Kids are really excited to come back to school. Uh, Teachers are really excited to uh, welcome their students. And so the way that it would unfold is that we want to see what students will be in seats. And so given that we may have new folks that have moved into uh, Surrey. We, we wouldn't be able to, like, I don't know what the prediction was last year of enrollment, but the year before, uh, they said that we had um, projections of 750. And then when we hit the ground, it was actually 2,000 plus hmm. students that had come in. And so we don't know what the numbers will be looking like once folks come into the schools. But I anticipate the same kind of um, thing that, that played out last year. And so uh, I think the beginning of the year is when they do the class organizations and they, you know, put students in classrooms according to grade groups. And then um, if there might be some split classes, if there's not enough students. But in Surrey, when we've been sort of battling space, um, we anticipate full classes uh, and we'll be anticipating probably even kids that won't be able to go to their own um, area schools because they may be full. 
Right. And that's something too, I would imagine that that's a, a bit, could be a bit chaotic or a bit to, for families that are trying to figure out what their school year is going to look like to then to the find out this week that, oh, you're actually not going to be going to the school in your neighborhood. You have to go to a different school. Yeah, I, I think in the next couple of weeks, we will know a little bit better of how many students we have received and if we will, if we will be able to accommodate in each of the schools. What does that mean for portables? It's my understanding, too, when we talk to the BCTF, that there there are more portables being used uh, in Surrey, I think it going from 310 to 335. Uh, when we talked to the school district last week, uh, Gary Timischuk talked about the fact that they are spending a lot of money, millions of dollars, moving portables from different schools to accommodate uh, the different levels of enrollment. What, what does that mean as far as, or how does that kind of impact teachers and how they're going to be working? Yeah, so, you know, it is a bit disruptive. And so it is my understanding that uh, Surrey School District, we should have about 400 plus portables. So those are temporary classrooms. My understanding is that there was a ministry announcement recently at Katie Woodward. So we were able to remove some of the portables there, but they have already been relocated to some of the newer schools that we're seeing. And so, you know, it's going to be influx here the space is going to continue to be, um, you know, something to look look out for. We know that um, our school trustees last year had said that even if you put um, 10 new schools in, it's still not enough. But at least it's a starting point. And portables are temporary classrooms. They will be inconvenient, especially because we talked about um, last year how portables can take up uh, additional space, additional space playgrounds, on um, parking lots, and so that becomes distractive for school communities, people living within the communities. And so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, but it's a wait and see. Right. And uh, yeah, certainly taking up a lot of space, like you said, a lot of outdoor space that with more and more students uh, would seem that it would be even more more necessary uh, for that. Uh, is, it, is it tough for teachers as well to try and figure out in that one of the other things we've talked about is when there are shortages, uh, there, if there isn't a teacher, say for a particular classroom or a grade, that that's where we might see a non-enrolling staff or, or specialists, other uh, staff members that, that are really there uh, as part of the whole thing, as a part of the whole support system. How does that impact teachers if, if those staff members are then pulled into the teaching positions? So there's a couple of things going on with that. Uh, so one thing is that if there is a shortage, um, as uh, Clint had mentioned, w- schools pull from non-enrolling. So what that would look like if there's not a classroom teacher, they would pull from the specialist positions to fill that temporary position. So that could look like pulling of learner support teachers, uh, librarians, music teachers, all of those folks that are um, specialist teachers to be able to go into the classroom. The other part of that, Jill, is that when we talk about um, uh, the uncertified individuals, so I know that in Surrey, uh, I'm not aware that we have any uncertified individuals in classrooms as of yet, but I have heard in other regions like Chilliwack that they have hired uncertified, uncertified individuals, and I think that that is actually something folks, parents need to be really concerned with. Um, education, uh, teachers care deeply about students. Our students' learning conditions are are our teachers' working conditions. And so it matters uh, what that looks like. 
Additionally, when we refer Jill about resources, teachers always are asking for resources um, because we want to be able to serve every single child that comes into our classroom. And so that gets harder and harder when we don't have access to that. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. When you talk about the working environment environment as well, uh, I guess on the, on the one hand, it's kind of nice that we're not focused or there isn't a lot of focus on uh, anything or things COVID-related. Although I know there are people that have concerns about, uh, again, the group setting and going back into that. Uh, where are things as far as air filtration and making sure that uh, not only for COVID, but as we get into cold and flu season and that, that it is health-wise as a safe learning and a safe working environment? So we stand at the same, you know, we are hoping if you've got access to windows, you're opening your windows, but we still have, you know, poor circulation and um, portables, as everyone knows, and depending on how aged those portables are. Um, so clean air is always, always so important. It would be really wonder if we, uh, wonderful if we had really clean air filtrations in every single classroom, uh, but I don't know what the reality of that is. I know when they build new schools, I think that they are trying to do the best they can with that regard. But I think that, as you stated, as we enter fall, we do know that, you know, COVID and the new variants, you know, will be spreading. And we'll just have to wait and see how, how that plays out. What advice would you give then to parents, and, and not just on the, on that front, on the health front, but in general? I know it is a time; it can be a stressful time for students, a stressful, a stressful time for parents, especially the first week or so when things are still being worked out. What advice do you give to people who do tend to get a bit stressed out with the uncertainty and with going back to school? Yeah, I would say you know uh, this is a really exciting time of the year for kids as for adults. I would say, you know, keep in communication with your classroom teachers, um, with your school community. I think that we'll try and work together the best that we can. And of course, if your child is not well, keep them home. That is so important. Um, And, and, you know, if you're able to sort of um, work with neighbors uh, to help sort of either, you know, if, if you don't have the ability, you know, extended family, friends to help out. But if your child is sick, please don't send them to school. And uh, again, make sure that, you know, you keep an open communication with the classroom teachers, the um, administrators, school community. We're really here to ensure that all of our students have access, they're included, and that we are able to give them the best education possible. That uh, sounds good. Again, as we head into another school year, Jatinder Veer, thank you so much for being here and for joining us today. Thank you for your time, Jill. Well, taking a look at the Online News Act, and we now know kind of what the price would look like if places like Meta and Google were to pay Canadian news companies for posting those links and for sharing Canadian news. But is that enough to put news back onto the places where so far it has been banned? Well, Matt Hatfield is campaigns director with Open Media and is joining us now to talk a little bit more about this. Matt, thank you so much for making the time today. 
Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wanted to go back a little bit before we talk about this latest development. But where are we as far as this was legislation that the government had been told by these companies, if you bring this in, we are not going to pay. We're not going to agree to this, uh, mainly because there's no there's no number out there. We don't know what we would be agreeing to pay. So instead, we're going to block Canadian news links. Uh, the government, I think, maybe thought they were bluffing. They clearly weren't. And that has kind of got us to where we are today. Have I missed anything major there? Well, it's, it's a complicated story, but yeah, that's the gist. So what does this mean, do you think, that Ottawa has come out now and said, okay, here's our calculation and here's what it might look like as far as a dollar figure, what you would be paying news companies for carrying these links? Yeah, so the status quo right now is Meta has blocked all news uh, in, in Canada on all their platforms. And uh, Google has not, but it said they are looking at what they might do. And I think the government is trying very, very hard to keep Google from joining that blockade. Um, and I think having a specific figure on the amount will make that more likely that Google might choose not to block news. But I, I really don't know what their calculus will be. Um, uh, at this point as well, I, I believe Meta has, has said, okay, th- that's, you, you're bringing us this new information and, and these new numbers, but it didn't appear that Meta has, has changed its mind or that this has made Meta even rethink its, its position, has it? I think there's almost no chance Meta will change their minds. I think news is very, very small in terms of any impact on their platforms. Their users aren't uh, complaining that much. It actually seems like Things are working pretty okay on Meta platforms without the news. And uh, Meta doesn't sort of see themselves um, as that kind of good corporate citizen. I think that maybe Google aspires to be more. So I think Google's a little bit more interested in finding a deal. The government is more interested in finding a deal with Google. And, of course, I, I think losing news from search results would be... Um, a lot more impactful even than it's been losing it from from meta platforms. Right. And and can you talk a bit more about the difference there? And and this has come up certainly during the wildfires uh, when some politicians, the premier and others uh, called on on meta specifically saying that it uh, was it was irresponsible that they weren't allowing the the links back on there. But I mean there are many many other places and other ways for people to find their news. But if it was taken from Google, would that be much different in that it's not as though you were searching it out and you just don't have meta as something where you found the news, it's that you're not getting any of those Canadian links when you search when you search it on Google. Yeah, I think it's worse. I mean, of course, alternatives will still exist. So uh, we don't think it's a good thing that so much of our internet traffic goes through Meta and Google platforms. And we've been encouraging everyone. You know, there's other search engines out there. There's other platforms you can post on. Um, you can form direct relationships with the news organizations you want to go to, and all of that is good stuff to do. However, um, a lot of people are still going to be on those platforms and are still going to be using Google search. And I think um, losing news links from from Meta has a big traffic impact on news organizations. Uh, But for people who might not immediately realize um, that news is available at Google News Search, uh, they might miss out on, on pretty crucial information that they're looking for at times using the search function. Right. Okay. What about the the revenue? And I mean, this is all being done, the government saying that, that it's doing this to get a fair deal for news agencies in Canada, for Canadian news publishers. But what about the lost revenue in that those links that were on meta platforms and that people were finding, I mean, there was advertising that was often part of that when you clicked on them and there was the exposure that the news publishers were getting. What about the loss of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, disappearing from meta platforms in exchange for a bit of revenue from Google is actually a very poor deal for no, most news publishers. Um, 
Obviously, the specific numbers are going to vary by platform, uh, but a lot of small outlets had about 50% of their traffic was coming from Meta. Uh, so losing that in exchange for really a, a fraction of a fraction of quite a small amount of funding, it doesn't make sense at all, and it's not going to help them out. So what do you think was behind this? And again, it's being sold as this is getting a fair deal for Canadian news publishers. But like you just said, this isn't something that's, that is leading to this windfall or would lead to a windfall for so many of the, the smaller or so many of the news publishers. So, so what was behind this? I think the government very, very deeply misread this situation. Uh, I think that we all know the news is important to society, and it's very important, you know, to the health of democracy and to certain accountability functions and, and good governance and so on. It's just not a big part of the bottom line of these platforms. And so uh, the government, for its own reasons, believed that it was all rhetoric when platforms were saying, listen, we're showing you our balance sheet. It's not a big deal for us. We're not going to pay huge amounts of sums for it. And they set up a bill uh, where the platforms had the choice to walk away from news. Um, they didn't have to set it up that way. And uh, Meta has walked away and Google might as well. And that was a government choice that created that option. There have been a lot of comparisons to what happened in Australia and the fact that there was a deal reached in Australia. Is it being naive, though, do you think, for this government to look at that and think that this is very similar or that this is going to go the same way? It's definitely not going the same way uh, for several reasons. They, they set up a different bill, uh, a more complex bill, and a bill the platforms could not get themselves exempted from. So the way it worked in Australia, the legislation never actually applied to anyone. It was purely a threat um, that once uh, the platforms of their own volition cut a certain number of deals, the government just did not actually bring it into effect on them. Uh, that is not an option under C-18, as it's been passed in Canada. And so it's leading to a much tougher response from the platforms. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the wider environment has also changed. So Meta has been moving further and further away from news. Uh, both platforms are afraid of legislation like this happening all over the world. Uh, and so they are responding in a, a more forceful way on that front as well. Right. And even like you said, too, when we're talking about these are Canadian links, this is certainly not a huge part of what Meta does or what Meta even pays attention to. Is it also the size of the Canadian news landscape that it, it's, again, not something that is deemed significant from these platforms? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it would be Canadian links, but also Canadian revenue. So in theory, it should be proportionate to the Canadian market. Um, but especially for Meta, but even for Google, it, it's just not what people are doing on their platforms very much. Uh, you know, we're talking about maybe uh, 1% to 4% of, of time spent uh, and of links uh, posted. People on Meta would prefer that people spend their time on their platform posting cat videos, and most people spend most of their time doing that as well. Right. Um, this uh, So the, the draft regulations as they are now, which does, again, it's not completely defined, but does include a formula that could potentially work out what a platform would have to pay uh, Canadian news publishers. So this is, this is out and will be open for a 30-day consultation period before things are finalized. Do you anticipate things that that 30-day consultation consultation period will actually lead to any change or or will, will cause anything to change? It might lead to some changes. And I think the government is solving certain problems but creating others. So one of our concerns looking at this is that they're actually putting Google in a position of a lot of power because Google isn't going to have to cut deals with everyone. Uh, I, I'm a bit alarmed as a Canadian with the idea that the world's company can choose to reward some news media and not others on pretty unclear terms. Uh, I think that could affect the quality of reporting on them, which, you know, that's not good for accountability and good governance.
And so why is that happening then? So how how is it written or what is the, the concern there that Google w- would kind of, I guess, have say in, in which agencies or publishers it pays and which ones it doesn't? So under the original version of the deal, they had to make a deal with basically everyone who approached them under, under a very broad set of criteria, too broad uh, in many respects. Um, and they, as a commercial body, like very recently were like, well, that's crazy. Like, we can't be forced into uh, just a totally open-ended obligation. We have no idea how big these deals could be. And in the future, as more and more outlets come up, the, the, the forced obligation could just get bigger and bigger. And so the government has said, okay, we hear you, we get it, we're going to put this cap on. Uh, it's not going to go higher than about 4% of your revenue. Uh, but because there's not really a, an independent body sort of uh, setting these deals or making sure that they're set up in the right way, that there's some CRTC monitoring, but in quite broad terms, um, I think there's a risk that Google can, can use it and say, okay, we have $162 million, we have to allocate. Um, the government's telling us we have to do that. Let's let's pick some friends and maybe let's not uh, spend this money on people that have been really harsh on us in the past or in the future. Hmm. And yeah, and there's so there's nothing in the legislation or nothing in these regulations that would stop that from happening. There's some things I don't know if it'll be strong enough. I mean, uh, they can say whatever they want uh, on paper in a guideline. Uh, the reality is, like these deals are completely secret. We're not going to have any insight into how much, with who, on what terms. There's some CRDC review. Uh, but I think Google would have tremendous power to uh, set up a, a pattern of deals that look fine to the CRDC, but might actually reflect some interest of Google's as well. Is there anything at this point to groups like yours or the public can do to to either if people want to stop this or change it or are, are not happy with it? Yeah, so we've got an open action asking them to, to fix this bill uh, and to propose a different solution for taking on the news. It did not need to be set up like this. Uh, it did not need to give Meta an opt-out clause that they've taken. Um, and we really think uh, the government is essentially doing uh, all the work of attacks uh, without setting up any of the sort of uh, transparency and fairness of attacks. If they want to do that, they should actually set up a tax for a journalism fund and just do the hard work of making sure that's uh, appropriate and accountable to the full Canadian political spectrum. I know everyone would worry about there being government funding for news, but we could set it up uh, in a fair way. And the government tried to take a shortcut that I don't think is going to work. Matt Hatfield, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. I saw a lot of people posting from the Ed Sheeran concert, having a great time this past weekend at BC Place, taking in the big show. But my next guest is here with a more personal story about Ed Sheeran being in town. Avi Shack is the owner of Beat Street Records and joins me on the line now. Avi, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, your story is, is a lot more than, say, getting a ticket and going to the Ed Sheeran show. Uh, from what I understand, so did Ed Sheeran actually stop by Beat Street Records? He did, yeah. He came by and played us a visit. And how, what, how did that go? It was great. Yeah, our friend uh, Nardwar helped connect some dots there. And uh, and he, uh, I, I've seen him around doing other public appearances. I saw him at a Lego store somewhere and Starbucks somewhere else. So he's kind of out in the public showing his face and um, had a nice chat with our staff. And um, yeah. Uh, and did you get any, did you get a heads up that he was coming by or was it suddenly Ed Sheeran is in the store? 
we had a heads up ahead of time. Uh, we had to, you know, in case <laughs> he gets mobbed or something like that. So, uh, yeah, we had to shut the store down and, uh, and he had his team with him and we, we knew it was going to happen. Okay. That's, I, I guess on the one hand, it's good that you get the heads up and you knew that because it could go either both ways, couldn't it? Either he gets mobbed or maybe even worse, he walks in and nobody has a clue who he is or, or were these very, very polite <laughs> Vancouver residents who don't say anything to him. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, so you got the heads up. He got there. Were staff pretty excited that this was happening? Oh yeah, yeah, we were thrilled. It was uh, it was nice to have him there and his visit, and it's great for uh, someone like that to show support for a local local business and record store that you know supports him. And your store, I know, is on West Hastings, so not a, a really far distance. Not that he was coming straight from BC Place, but kind of in the same area. That's right. Yeah, he came before his show uh, on Saturday. Okay. And did you get a chance to have a conversation with him? Yeah, yeah, I talked to him for quite a while. Um, yeah, and there could be some Nardwar interview coming up, I think. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, there was there was quite a bit of conversation, and we had a we had a great uh, a great time. What did you guys talk about? Uh, we talked about everything from music to you know we do music and collectibles and and uh, art supplies, and so we were talking about art, we were talking about music, um, and just you know day to day life, I guess. Very nice. And I know he posed with the staff and I know uh, that that you have shared that uh, as well. Um, did he buy anything from the store? He didn't. He was there mostly as a public uh, uh, um, appearance, I guess you would say. But his team was definitely there uh, purchasing stuff <laughs> as he was walking through and talking to everybody. I understand that. So, okay, so he didn't, it's not like he went on a shopping spree, but uh, the, the social media and the, the, the uh, attention that this has generated, I understand he uh, also had a bit of a gift for uh, everybody at the store. He did, actually. He, uh, he, he, well, he brought us to his concert and gave us a, a private suite at the show, so we all got to go there, um, which was very nice. And then uh, he also signed a whole bunch of records, which we um, sold at the store as a special... Uh, um, deal today, which went very quick. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you put, you posted about the signed records and put it out there. What was the response like to that? Yeah, it was almost instant. Uh, people are pretty quick. They're pretty dialed in these days. So we had about 30 signed records and CDs, uh, that he had left with us that we, um, just offered to customers at regular retail price. And yeah, people definitely rushed in to buy them. And did you get the sense, or is this something that he does when he goes to different cities, or, or what was it that, that made him want to come there, talk to everybody, and, and sign all of the records and such, and leave them for you? Um, I think he he does make public appearances throughout the city. Um, like I said, I think the the you know Nardwar helped us out there a little bit, um, but definitely he I think he likes to go to different kinds of places in every city. And that makes sense uh, that he would choose uh, music and a record store. I, I would sure. think, too, I don't know if you talked to him about this, but uh, some of the challenges given uh, where music is today and how people are consuming and purchasing music, uh, that uh, not everybody is still shopping at record stores. That's true, yeah. I mean, streaming has really taken over in that way. But we've had a huge resurgence lately, and people really... Uh, wanting to connect to artists in that way and and how people... Um, feel like purchasing a record or a CD has a lot more meaning than just, you know, having it in your streaming playlist, 
where you can actually connect to the artist in a way. Uh, and even more so, I would imagine, when it's something that the artist has just been there and signed it. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and did you talk to him about that as well, his thoughts on, on people purchasing the actual physical records as opposed to streaming? Sure, yeah, and he said that he had got back into it, and I think during the pandemic, a lot of people felt that way, where you know people were staying home and listening to, to music in a different kind of way. So he was saying that, yeah, he had gotten back into, you know, buying records and tapes even and uh, having a physical uh, media purchase to uh, use when you're at home. Have you had other artists and celebrities like this come into the store before? Absolutely. Yeah, we had uh, Elton John came in about, must have been five years ago or so. Uh, We had Tyler, the creator, in recently. Um, yeah, we lots of lots of celebrities do come in. And do you think it's because of the store itself, or also the location of where it is, close to where where many of the artists are performing? I think it's a combination of the location and and uh, and our store has a. We try to give something to offer for every different kind of person, and uh, so we have a a wide selection and a unique selection. I think um, so. It's probably a combination of both. And how has it been as far as, uh, I know so many businesses uh, had challenges throughout COVID and uh, and we've, we've seen other businesses close down. How has it been operating and, and running a record store? Um, well, at first it was tough, but actually it, it, we've been thriving since COVID and we really gained a lot of uh, customers. There's been a huge resurgence in, in vinyl and um yeah, I can't complain. Business has been actually good for us. That is uh, that is great to hear. Uh, did you keep anything that Ed Sheeran signed, or did it all go on sale? He signed one specifically to the store, which uh, I kept for sure. Nice. Anything, any of the other ones, we tried to get into the hands of as many fans as possible. <laughs> Where, was there a lineup then, or were people, did people, I'm guessing more people ar- arrived or showed up than you had actual items to sell? Yeah, and that's always a sad moment when you run out of the last one and <laughs> the super fans are coming in hoping to get and they walk away disappointed, so that's a little tough. But uh, definitely uh, it was very quick and people are people are tuned in and I guess downtown. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, he seems like a, a nice person. He seems like somebody that, that is very down to earth and uh, even though he has uh, with the, his status and uh, there's tens of thousands or I think, what was it, more than 65,000 people that, that went to the concert, he does kind of seem like somebody that you could just have a chat with. He was really felt like an everyday guy that, you know, just wanted to hang out and have a chat for sure. Very, uh, very humble. Well, I'm so, so glad that you were able to have that experience and uh, then sell all of the merchandise and so, make so many people so happy. Uh, Avi, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. I know it's been a very busy day today, so thanks for making yeah. the time. Okay, thank you. Party goers stranded at a counterculture event by a late summer storm are hoping that the very muddy roads are drying out enough that they are reopening well around now or at least within the next couple of hours and allow for them to start their exodus from that desert in northern Nevada. This was an unusual late summer storm. It turned the week-long Burning Man event into what some are saying is a giant sloppy mess. Tens 
tens of thousands of people stuck in mud that is said to be about a foot deep in some cases. No working toilets in parts of the uh, the scene, parts of where that festival is taking place. This is the gathering in the Black Rock Desert north of Reno. It attracts usually around 80,000 people. It's a mix of wilderness camping, performances, some people in a little higher end camping, maybe even a bit of glamping. But again, that rain causing a lot of trouble for some. There has been a report of at least one death as well, but festival organizers say that death was not weather related. Well, Mark Fromson is a Vancouver photographer who traveled to Burning Man and joins us now to talk more about that. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Great. Yeah, the sun is out and the playa is drying out and people are in good spirits and just cleaning up. And uh, the people staying are looking forward to the burning of the man tonight. Uh, what's it been like uh, the past 24 hours? I know we've been seeing a lot of uh, the rainfall and the flooding in the, in the area where you are in the Nevada desert. What has that been like? Well, the worst of it was Friday um, afternoon and evening. And ever since then, it's it's been slowly improving. So I would say that was the most traumatic time. Um, I'm sure there's been people that have been in some distress, um, although that hasn't been uh, our experience. Uh, and I think the people who are worst off are, are the people who try to get their, their, their RVs or cars out early and are now basically encased in concrete um, uh, with no way to get their vehicles out of the, the hard mud. Hmm. So that is the biggest problem out here right now. Can you see where that has happened, or is that farther away from where you are? It's farther away from me, but I have seen drone photos, and it is not pretty, that's for sure. Hundreds of vehicles stuck in the mud. Yeah. And that's people, like you said, then when the rains started, and I know the advice was for people to just kind of stay put and wait. So that sounds like that's people who maybe didn't pay attention to that or, or thought they would try and get out anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they are going to be paying the price now. That's for sure. Uh, what's it been like for people that aren't familiar with Burning Man and and kind of the the mood there and the feeling there of, of people helping each other and, and bartering and that kind of thing? What's it been like dealing with this extreme weather and with the flooding? Um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, burners are very prepared for this type of thing. Um, there's often extreme weather out here. There can be 24, 48-hour dust storms, extreme heat, and it's not unheard of for it to, to rain. In fact, it rained uh, the week prior to the event when they were setting up and they had to shut down the setup for a couple days. So um, if you're an experienced burner, you're prepared for the worst. You've got food, water, shelter, uh, heat, um, and you're ready to wait it out if something happens. So for the most part, burners just enjoy the experience of extreme weather. It's kind of like a rite of passage for us um, as we overcome each event as it happens. Have you been to Burning Man before? Yes, this is my fifth burn. Fifth time. And have you ever had to or have you ever experienced anything like this weather-wise? Uh, last year was very tough. Uh, it was quite windy and very, very, very hot and uh, it turned a lot of people off. Um, yeah, but nothing nothing like this with the, the rain and mud that really shuts everything down and makes everything, you know, almost impossible. But um, it dries up fast. Uh, we're lucky that uh, it's not a sustained weather system. Um, and everybody's going to be able to get out of here just fine, um, except for the people who tried to leave early. Right. Um, what about supplies? Did you have enough supplies to get you through? 
Absolutely. Most people bring about double what they need um, just in case. So we had about double so we could stay here for another week if needed. Have you been able to or, or have people come to you as far as getting help? I had I'd read and seen some footage of people that had run out of supplies. And again, kind of the whole or one of the the things about the festival being people willing to help. Have you been able to or has anyone asked you for help, given that it sounds like you and the, the people you're with are very prepared? Uh, we haven't had anybody in dire straits come to our camp specifically, but we're quite uh, in an area where there are a lot of prepared camps. So there is an area that's way on the other side where it's just open camping. And that's where people who are by themselves go uh, and potentially are just in a tent. Uh, maybe have got dropped off here from somebody they don't know or they took the burner express bus. And so those people are really the people who are probably on Friday night in the worst off position because they might have not brought warm clothing and, and they might have thought that it was going to be, um, you know, hot and dry. And uh, hypothermia was the biggest concern for those people. So um, I haven't heard of any extreme like a death from hypothermia or anything. But um, if there's anyone in distress, it would have been people kind of on the outskirts there. And hopefully they went in and got help. Uh, um and the BlackRock Information Radio is keeping everybody really well informed on the FM radio station and asking everybody to open their doors um, for shelter to anybody in need. And that's just the way that we do it around here. Hmm. Uh, can you describe your camp? What does it look like? Uh, we're at the back of Crossroads Camp, which is a, uh, the main live music camp on the playa. Um, they put on live music shows of all types. Um, and right now it's pretty muddy. Our campmates are just um, digging themselves out and cleaning stuff off and putting it in their, their RVs for the ride home. What is it? You said you mentioned that this is the fifth time that you've been there. What is it about Burning Man that draws you to the festival? Well, it's really a magical place. Um, if you've never been here, it's really hard to understand from the videos and the photos, the sheer scale and just overwhelming visual and uh and sound stimuli that you are just um, completely overwhelmed with when you're when you're out here. And every year, different artists bring massive and small art installations out. Um, most of the, most of the time, they're all different. Um, they're very interactive, and you can climb all over them and explore them. Um, there's always different music out here, um, and every uh, oh, there's thousands of camps, and every single camp um, usually has a theme and a name and they're all open for you to walk into and meet the people there and experience um, the various little kitschy things that they have to offer. Um, so it's, it's, it's an experiment um, that has been going on for 30 years now uh, since it was started by the founder Larry Harvey on a beach in San Francisco. And um, you know, I, I, it's hard to describe unless you've been here, you really have to come and see it for yourself. And it's the sheer scale of what's going on around you is just breathtaking. Hmm. Well, and uh, it, it does sound certainly and clearly uh, tens of thousands of people take part and make it to the festival every year. I heard from or we're hearing from authorities as well, organizers saying that people will start leaving later today or they're hoping that the roads will be passable. Is that the message that you're getting as well? Yeah, I think um, probably the gates will be open in a couple hours. Um, what they've had to do is the main entrance to the road is crammed with hundreds of abandoned vehicles and it's really impossible to pass there. So they've literally had to carve a new road around those vehicles out to the main road, the main asphalt road. 
So they've been busy doing that and they've been waiting for the mud to harden enough so that it's safe um, for most vehicles to pass. And the word is that that is going to be this afternoon. All right. Uh, have you been able to enjoy the festival given uh, the weather and what's been happening this time? Absolutely. I would say it's my best burn ever, <laughs> uh, believe it or not. Uh, I got engaged to my longtime partner out here on Wednesday night. And uh, so that's made it uh, one of the most memorable things of my life for sure. Wow. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, what, what's the, the plan then for you as far as, uh, like you said, you have enough supplies if you, if you needed to stay or had to stay for a few more days. But what's the plan for you for exiting and for leaving the festival? Yeah, well, the, the man burns tonight, um, which is uh, usually on Saturday night. And so we're going to be staying for that for sure. And another large artwork um, called the Chapel of Babel is going to be burned uh, a couple hours after that. Um, so we're going to stay for that and then try to get uh, a bit of sleep and then head out at first light tomorrow morning. All right. And, and just to, to recap again, for people not familiar with the festival, what is the significance? I know it's called Burning Man, but when you talk about the, the actual man burning uh, this evening, what is the significance of that again? Um, it's really, I guess you could call it um, like our New Year's Eve. Um, it's really where we just put the past year behind us and we look forward to the, the future of the new year. And um, when Larry Harvey first uh, conceived of it, he brought a large uh, wooden structure, um, uh, um, the man out to Baker Beach in California. And uh, he burned it, um, from what I understand, uh, and I'm not positive, but he wanted to uh, rebirth himself after uh, a, a, a relationship ended. And so it was kind of burning the effigy of his old relationship and, and uh, trying to get himself to the other side. That's what a lot of burners really uh, kind of feel like. They come out here to put the past um, maybe negative behind them and uh, look forward to the positive future. Um, so every year a different architect is chosen um, to build a different man structure, which is absolutely massive and takes a, a full team of people to build. And um, then on the Saturday night, we burn the man. And the entire camp, uh, the entire festival circles around the man. Uh, and it's safely burned with a lot of uh, a lot of fire people on hand, fire specialists to make sure that we're all safe. And then on the Sunday, the other large structure called the temple burns. Um, and that's really marks the end of the festival. And the temple is more of a solemn place where you go to hang up um, memorials to the people that you lost this year. So it's filled with hundreds of handmade memorials, uh, including um, uh, we lost a friend this year and we made a memorial for him and put it up on the walls inside the temple. So um, the temple burn we think is going to be tomorrow night, but we, we unfortunately won't be staying for that one. Um, but uh, I'm sure some people will. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us and for letting us know how things are going there. And safe passage to you when you do leave the festival. And again, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.